0: Dr. Stephen Jones is a legendary figure in breast cancer clinical research and in fact developed the AC chemotherapy regimen that now is the backbone for adjuvant therapy for many or most women with breast cancer. I met with Dr. Jones to obtain an update on new research in the field and implications to patients and he began our conversation by discussing how he
1: evaluates a woman after primary breast cancer surgery for risk to relapse. The things that we know about breast cancer for prognosis, I mean, the most important thing is whether lymph nodes are involved or not. And if the lymph nodes are and then we start to look at other factors. And the presence of estrogen receptor, then that's present in 65 to 75% of all breast cancers. That's a more favorable prognostic factor. We look at how the cancer looks under the microscope, tumor grade, how aggressive it appears. But that kind of depends on the pathologist who's looking at that. You know, a test that's been looked at, for example, by the ASCO Tech Assessment Committee, which I disagree with, is really proliferation. Proliferation, I think we did a better job of measuring that in the past when we had DNA flow cytometry in S phase because it was done pretty reproducibly by large labs like Nichols Lab. But there are other techniques that aren't quite so reproducible for that, and so whether cancer is fast-growing or slow-growing. And I think that actually makes a fairly big factor. And when it's done in a good situation, I think it's a pretty reproducible factor. Now,
0: aren't proliferation genes a key part of the Oncotype DX assay?
1: They are, and I think the Oncotype uses 21 genes, a lot of which are ones we already know about. Estrogen receptor, HER2 positivity, proliferation, that's a big part of it. Soon, Paik from NSABP thinks that proliferation is a big part of what makes up that test result when you get it back. So if you can get at this some other way, then I don't think you necessarily need that. If I see somebody that has a 2-centimeter invasive ER ER-positive node-negative, breast cancer, the next thing I'm really looking for, and we assume that this is HER2 negative, you know, that's about 80% of these. Then the next thing I look for is really proliferation. So there are tests that our pathologists do pretty well, MIB1 or KI67. These are really just stains to see what fraction of cells are dividing or growing. And if it's a high value, then that, in my view, is actually an independent risk factor. That would really probably correlate with a high recurrence score on, on So, you know, given the same kind of cancer, you might have a 10% 10 10-year risk of recurrence or a 30% based on whether it's slow or fast growing if you have a reliable way to decide that. And I think actually maybe Oncotype might be the current generation reliable way of trying to decide that. And so you know, if a patient has a rapidly growing cancer, I'm very inclined to recommend adjuvant chemotherapy. And if it's a slow growing cancer, I probably will not. So that's really the thing I look for in my practice.
0: I want to track out how you do evaluate and manage the patient. Same case, except it's HER2 positive. But just to finish out on the HER2 negative, so I can kind of see you know, your philosophy in terms of chemotherapy, whether you're going to use it or not. But all these patients are going to get hormonal therapy because of the ER positivity. How do you go about selecting hormonal therapy in this situation, both in the premenopausal patient and the postmenopausal patient?
1: I think that in the premenopausal patient, for the most part, we're talking about lower risk breast cancer, the treatment of choice is tamoxifen until they become postmenopausal. And sometimes, as you've discussed many times in these programs, that can be hard to tell. In the postmenopausal patients, I think you right now have two choices, and that would be to start with tamoxifen and then plan a switch to an AI, or starting out with an AI like Aremidex or Letrozole, and both of those are approved for upfront use based on ATAC and Big 198.
0: Let's switch over and talk a little bit about metastatic disease, In terms of hormones, one of the issues that's a little bit challenging is the sequence of hormones, particularly in the postmenopausal patient, and a lot of times the premenopausal patients are being made postmenopausal. We have a number of different choices. You know, you've got the AIs, you've got Tamoximin, you've got Fulvestrin.
1: How do you sort of decide what sequence you're going to use them? I tend to use all these drugs and, you know, I don't think there's a set sequence yet. There are some studies looking at sequence. The typical sequence before was adjuvant tamoxifen or tamoxin first and then AIs and so on. That's going to change because we're using a lot more AIs up front and we may not be using much tamoxifen or brief tamoxin, so I think tamoxilin will remain a viable alternative. I think Fazladex is certainly a viable alternative. We need to get the dose of Faslodex squared away, and there's at least three current dosing schedules, loading dose, and so on that just hasn't been resolved. And then I think that's an inhibitory to planning an adjuvant study with Faslodex. Though I think that would be a reasonable study to do.
0: What have you observed while you're talking about Faslodex in terms of, you know, sort of overall responsiveness compared to tamoxifen AIs?
1: As you say, there's some data out there, but what about your personal experience? And my personal experience is I've had a number of patients with very long remissions or stable disease with Faslodex, but you've got to get past the first two or three or four months of treatment. And if they're still stable at that time, then they may well have a very prolonged stable response. And that kind of raises this issue that if you're using the standard, approved schedule, that you're seeing progression before someone has a steady state level of the drug. And there is this European trial of double dose versus the standard approved dose. I think that will settle it once and for all, whether there's any added benefit. And there may not be. It may be that the approved dose is perfectly adequate. It's just we don't know. And that's been a lingering issue since Ken Osborne brought it up years and years ago. So you know I tend to use the drugs and I probably will use AIs first that's sort of been our routine and then use Faslodex I think if you've had an inhibitor like or a nastrozol or letrozol then you can use XMSN there's a definable clinical benefit rate and I still like to use Megace in the situation can come back and recycle and use some of these drugs again But kind of what I see among a lot of oncologists, particularly younger oncologists that still have a lot of hair and it's not gray, is that they pretty quickly go to chemotherapy. And I think for some patients that's a big mistake because they may have benefited for years and years long-term responses to some of these agents. You can't predict who it is and suddenly they'll have this miraculous response, you know, five years on Megase or, you know, three and a half years on Faslodex, and all they're getting is a fairly simple hormonal agent with virtually no toxicity.
0: Yeah, I guess there's always that pressure and that feeling that you want to do something more active or aggressive towards the tumor that prompts a lot of people without too much experience to
1: maybe shortcut hormones? Well, I think that kind of gets back to your obligation. My obligation is to try to explain the reality to patients that, you know, certainly I see patients who think if they recur, they've got to go on chemo to be aggressive, but they might be an absolute perfect candidate for hormonal treatment and have a very prolonged response. And you really have to convince them, sometimes have to convince them that that's the right thing to do. But that they're not going to lose their hair, they're going to have minimal toxicity from the hormonal treatment. And if it works, it may work for a long time and predicts for other hormonal agents working. So focusing on the 80% of patients with HER2 negative tumors,
0: where you get to the point that you want to use chemotherapy for metastatic disease, either because their tumors ER negative or they've already had hormones and they're no longer working. How do you approach the
1: decision about what chemotherapy to use and whether to include Avastin or Bevacizumab? I think the first point that is really now very clear, and you would think it wouldn't be so clear, you'd think it would be resolved, is there is no one standard treatment for metastatic breast cancer. It's basically we have a lot of choices, all these things work. Whatever you use the first time has the most success rate, and with less success rate, second line, third line, fourth line. But I think in this, it's really a palliative treatment, trying to control the patient's symptoms. You're not going to get cure out of the situation for the most part, except for very special situations. And you really have to balance the patient's wishes and desires, hair loss, no hair loss, how aggressive they want to be with the options. And I'm firmly in the sequential single agent camp. You have that discussion on these programs all the time. I think most of the people who come on here are in that camp, but there are a few who are sort of steadfast combination people. The combinations get higher response rate, but have a lot more toxicity and... And I will occasionally present that to patients, and some patients, younger patients who want to be more aggressive, will pick that. My view on combination is changing because I think it's different to think about combining a biologic agent with chemo as opposed to combining two chemo ray agents, which are really going to create a lot more toxicity. So, you know, the excitement at the moment is for bevacizumab in combination. And I think the big issue there, and I don't know what the situation is right at the moment, the big issue there is, will insurance cover it? I think unless you're living in a total environment where you're not worried at all about covering the costs of these treatments for patients, it's a real issue. I think most oncologists in practice can't take a chance of being months and months not being paid for bevacizumab for breast cancer. So some oncologists are able to get this for their patients. Other ones cannot. That actually is an opportunity for us in U.S. oncology because we are participating in the Ribbon one and the Ribbon 2 trials. These are very important studies trying to get information, you know, either first line or second line of Bevasuzumab with a variety of different chemo agents other than paclitaxel. And it's really important that we do that. So I'm hoping, and we kind of urge to the network that our docs think about entering patients on these trials where the bevacizumab be provided. And I think in this era of financial concerns and reimbursement, that makes a lot of sense. Plus, it'll get us the very much needed data
0: putting aside the issues about costs and reimbursement from a sort of practical clinical perspective how do you see the risk-benefit ratio of adding in bevacizumab to chemotherapy and metastatic breast cancer?
1: I think the risk is pretty low. We just don't have the data other than upfront weekly paclitaxel and bevacizumab in patients who have been off taxanes at least 12 months. So if someone had had a recent paclitaxel, I probably would try docetaxel with it. I might try other agents. But you're on shakier grounds. We just don't have the data. and We really need that data.
0: Putting aside the issue of Bevacizumab, can you talk a little bit about the three available taxanes and how you go about deciding which one you might use in a woman with metastatic breast cancer?
1: Well, I think in our practice, you know, we've used a lot of Taxotere. And we've done that because our last trial was AC adjuvant docetaxel or docetaxel capecitabine. So once you've kind of offered that trial to a patient in the standard treatment who thinks AC docetaxel, it's pretty hard to say I'm going to give you something different. You know, that right at the moment, we don't have an open standard trial. And we have done a lot of the pilot work. Joanne Blum, one of my partners, has reported a lot of the pilot data on weekly braxane and so on. I think it's a very novel delivery system for delivering paclitaxel. It appears to be a very active drug. We've done the adjuvant pilot dose stents that Nick Robert has done with a braxane. This is potentially applicable to other drugs as well. Docetaxel, gemcitabine, for example, are drugs that potentially could be done in a nanoparticle formulation. I mean, I think we will see that. I think that sort of technology for that is kind of here to stay. I kind of. To see that the issue though with Abraxane use kind of around the country is one of cost and reimbursement again. It's that sort of reluctance to kind of take, you know, it's approved, it's listed, and yet docs are just a little bit hesitant about giving several months of a very expensive drug and maybe not getting reimbursed for it. It's a very different situation than it was several years ago where no one paid a whole lot of attention to that
0: again, putting aside sort of cost and reimbursement issues, let's say in the first line metastatic setting, how would you compare the risk-benefit ratio of the three taxanes clinically?
1: And, you know, I use a lot of taxol, But at the same time, what sort of happened is weekly paclitaxels come along, then abraxanes come along on every three-week basis that's more active than every three-week paclitaxel. So I think it's these are all the options that are out there. And I think we certainly see a lot of weekly taxane use. If I'm going to use dose taxol or taxateer, I don't use it weekly. I use it every three weeks. I don't use it full dose in the metastatic setting. I reduce the dose. makes it a lot more tolerable. It's still a very active drug. If I'm going to use a weekly taxane right now, I generally pick weekly paclitaxel. But if expense was not an object, I think weekly abraxane has been very active in that setting as well.
0: How much of an advantage do you think it is to not have to use premedications and have a shorter infusion time with nab-paclitaxel.
1: Well, it's certainly an advantage Compared to a three hour infusion in chair time. And it's an advantage to not have the pre medications. Those, for some patients, have fairly nasty side effects and they really don't like it. So if you can avoid it, that's a good thing. I think if you're doing you know, relatively short infusions of paclitaxel over an hour or so on a weekly schedule, is not a huge difference, except you still have the pre medications there. So I think having something without the pre and without cremophore or a stabilizing agent is actually a Benefit.
0: This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Breast Cancer Update.